Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Endurance Cartel Podcast. I am your performance and lifestyle coach, Javier Pineda. If you're enjoying the content of this podcast, share it with your friends and drop us a review. They're always welcome. Help us expand to new listeners, and it also lets me know how I'm doing. So it's always welcome. If you're also looking for more information on this podcast, you can always go to my Instagram at Endurance Cartel, or you can go to my website, www.endurancecartel.com. Today's guest is neuroscientist and host for the neuroathletics podcast, Dr. Luisa Nicola, who we discuss how sleep impacts performance. We also touch upon recovery, mainly through ice bath. Finally, we discuss the relationship between resistance training and brain health. I'm telling you, this is one of those episodes you might want to even take notes on. So make yourself some coffee, grab a pen or pencil, take a piece of paper. Now let's get down to business. Thank you very much for being on the Endurance Cartel podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. For listeners that are just getting to know you and getting to know the word neuroscientist, how did you come about all this? Because it's fascinating to me. Took a lot of, uh, it took a lot of work. I went to school for 10 years. I was an elite athlete myself and I work in that space. So I just had to be an intersection and I figured that out in 2014. The first time we actually worked together was with two of your clients who happened to be financial leaders. That's correct. I have some topics that I wanted to discuss with you. Sleep and performance, recovery and performance, and resistance training and brain health. Having all these factors, just having the perfect and symmetrical athlete, because I was blown away by the results of those individuals, not only on a physical level, but also on a neurological level. Yeah. It's interesting. So my company, NeuroAthletics, we started out in the athletic space and then we moved into the finance space. And in my opinion, these people are performing like elite athletes. They have to show up every day. They literally lose money when they are burnt out and not performing at their peak. And that's, uh, yeah, so that's a, it's a really interesting segue. What's the number one reason in clients you train that don't perform at their peak? Look, this is a, a very broad topic, but there are a number of different factors that impede any human's performance. Okay. So if we are looking solely at the business CEO or finance executive, so many things that I see really disrupt their performance. And and I'll talk to you about a few of them that I've noticed. First of all, stress is a huge, is a huge factor that limits their performance. Mm -hmm. And I can go into these further later. Sleep performance. Evidently a lot of them are sleep deprived. Some of them barely sleeping six hours, which has massive impacts on their ability to make decisions, their ability to stay emotionally in control and just their ability to handle pressure. So stress, sleep, what they put in their mouths from a nutrition perspective and a hydration perspective. And then of course, all of this, when you, they can't manage these three pillars, they turn to alcohol and alcohol is a really big no-no when it comes mm. to performance. So I think, I think that's what I see. And that's the, the three things or four things that get in the way of somebody's ability to perform at their peak. I'm not the greatest sleeper. I've gotten myself to sleep better. I've read a lot of your information. I consider you a brain ninja. uh, Okay, sometimes I sleep too much and I feel groggy. Sometimes I sleep too little and I feel 
I can do things better. If I'm an athlete, how do I manage my sleep? How can I start getting my sleep better? Okay, so let's look at how sleep has evolved. Okay, so historically speaking, when we look at sleep back, you know, in the Stone Ages, what we would see is humans would have, okay, and they would be in that cave, and that cave was very dark, it was very cold, and their entire day was predicted by the when the sun comes up and when the sun goes down they didn't have clocks back then so that's how our bodies really you know that's what sleep was about back then you'd sleep eight or nine hours and you would raise with the sun hmm. nowadays we're now prone to we've got things such as light from computers and television screens that disrupts us we have certain foods we've got alcohol this disrupts us we've got um, social media you know that keeps our mind going crazy that disrupts sleep, then pile on the pressures, et cetera. So many things disrupt sleep. Now, if you're looking at an athlete and you're thinking, does an athlete really need to focus on sleep? And if you ask me that question, the question is like 1000%. I think we're getting a lot of the things wrong. I think if we look at elite athletes and some of these elite athletes, how do I get better? And what, yeah, and you're probably, you're probably in this field as well. Maybe an elite athlete comes to you and they say, I want to work on my aerobic or anaerobic base. And most people are inclined to just, you know, put them on the treadmill or get them outside and run and do this and do that. When in actual fact, sometimes they should just be sleeping a bit more. Mm. And We've noticed, you know, in a lot of the studies that I've done and in the scientific literature that a recovered person or a well-slept person can have better, they can move the lever by two or three points the following day than if they're in a sleep-deprived state. So if anyone is lacking sleep and they want to be able to increase their sleep fitness, there are many different things that they can do. And the first thing is you've got to start with consistency, literally going to bed at the same time every night. I know, Javier, you're probably thinking, but Louise, I've got two screaming kids. I I can't do that. And I understand that. Yeah. But this is the, when you ask me questions, I can't, I attack it from a science perspective. And Mm -hmm. the science, you know, is there to say consistency is number one. And the second thing that I would say after that is you're really preparing for sleep the moment that you wake up. Mm. So if you wake up in the morning, and you go outside and you get natural sunlight for five minutes, that is going to kickstart your circadian rhythm. The moment that you get sunlight in your eyes, it signals to an area in the brain that, hey, I'm awake. And if that is at 7 a.m., 12 hours after that is when you're going to start to get tired. So if you see light at 8 a.m., you're going to start to feel tired at 8 p.m. that night. Interesting. Yeah. How about people that, like myself, I wake up at crack of dawn a little bit before dawn, night out, say 4.30 in the morning. Wow. What would your recommendations be for somebody like myself, just wait for the sun or do artificial lights work at all? Yeah. So artificial lights, not as in the overhead lights in your apartment. So one light that I found to be extremely beneficial, I actually have it. I'm going to grab it before you can see us, but it's actually this light here. Okay. It's called a happy light. And what happens is this light actually emits uh, 10,000 lux of light. So it's if you put this on your face and you shine it in your face for 15 minutes or 20 minutes, it's pretty much equal to the amount of sunlight that you'd get from five minutes of being outside. Now, does that mean that you need to go and do this at 4.30 in the morning? No. 
but it really depends on when you feel like you want to fall asleep that night. You can be up at 4.30 in the morning and then catch the sunrise when it, sun, when it rises at 7, 7.30 a.m. Okay. You don't have to put that thing in your face, right? You don't have to stare at it. You can move around, make your coffee. Yeah, no, you, you don't have to just stare at it. You can, no, you can have that in your kitchen and you can turn it on and obviously just mm-hmm. you don't have to put it right in front of your face. So yeah, you can definitely do that. And this is very different, by the way. Yeah, this is very different to the lines Mm -hmm. that we see. I've had a lot of clients and sleep is literally what is killing them. That's the root of the problem. And it's seen in the initial assessment that I do with them. And they don't think of it as a problem. They continue their life saying that it's something else. The problem sleep is not the problem. Yeah. Sleep is, first of all, it's imperative to every physiological aspect. and. When you're losing, when you're on a mission to lose fat, let's just say, and you feel like you, there's nothing that you can do. Sometimes when you're on a weight loss journey and it says five extra pounds that you, you feel like a stubborn fat, your gateway to that is sleep. For those people who are sleeping four hours a night, it's completely in my realm unheard of. And I'm scared for these people for many different aspects, for a longevity perspective, for a weight loss perspective, for uh, for everything. So yes, sleep is the holy grail when it comes to weight loss, when it comes to training effectiveness, and when it comes to brain health. You are affiliated with companies that can track sleep. For instance, mm. you're affiliated to Whoop. You're affiliated to Eight Sleep, which makes mattresses. Yeah. So when I when we say affiliated, so my company Neuroathletics has partnered with. Okay, we can start with Eight Sleep. Eight Sleep is a is a fitness technology company, sleep fitness technology company. They make mm-hmm. mattresses and also mattress covers. Mm. And this is to help in the aid of getting a better quality sleep. And I've been sleeping on one now for. I would say going on 18 months now, and it completely changed my sleep in every aspect. So that's one. Whoop is a, another partner of ours. And I use Whoop uh, 24-7 to track my sleep data because I think that it's not enough to just wake up anymore and say, oh, I didn't sleep well. We've really got to track and measure why. And Whoop does a really good way of doing it. I've tested several devices. Uh, are they all the same or they provide you with different information? What's the difference? So first of all, we, yeah, we're really stringent on who we partner with. So first of all, why eight sleep? So I don't do my tracking and measuring from eight sleep. Eight sleep does give you data in the morning to say how well you've slept. I actually don't look at that. I use eight sleep for the product and there is nothing that I know that helps you manipulate your thermal temperature better than this mattress. So why do I use it? First of all, What we know is that in order to fall asleep, that's called your sleep latency, in order to fall asleep and stay asleep, our core body temperature needs to drop at least two degrees. And that's a very big, that's really from your core body temperature to drop at two degrees, that's really hard to do. The only way to really do that is with a temperature controlled mattress. So when I sleep on this bed, I set it up. So there's an app that it comes with and I set up and it goes through the different sleep stages. So you can you know, put it up to plus two, which is like hot. You can go up to plus eight, which is extremely hot. And then you can also do minus one, minus two. And I have it changed throughout the night. So if I get hot during the night, it automatically senses my skin, my body temperature, and it drops it. 
two degrees. So I think that's really smart. So mm. I use that for the mattress. But when it comes to, well, Whoop is this 24-7 strap. It's like your personal coach. It tells you your effectiveness of sleep. So it could say, hey, Louisa, you slept, you, you scored 83% in your sleep, but the reason you missed out on 100% is because you had frequent movements through the night or you didn't sleep enough. You only slept six hours or you slept eight hours, but you didn't spend much time in REM sleep or deep sleep. So that's that's pretty much why I use Whoop. And look, I, I don't know. I, I, the Whoop is more intelligent than what it shows the general public. Yeah, it shows you HRV. Yes, it shows you your sleep, but it does a lot behind the scenes to do that, where it grabs your HRV from, how it, it can even predict your, it can predict you, your health status in terms of if you're going to get sick. It can mm. predict so many different things, trends in your performance. So I use it because of the intelligence behind it. I'm competitive with myself. So my question to you is for somebody who's competitive with numbers, going to sleep and thinking, I got to score better, got to score better. And then stress kicks in. You don't get the best quality of sleep. I feel was my downfall from those type of gadgets in measuring sleep. So what would be the best advice for somebody getting competitive like myself? That comes down to an optimization perspective, right? This is why I put out a podcast every week. It's to help people optimize their performance. And so I think it's a really great thing when you look at your sleep scoring, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm 55%. First of all, you have to be smart enough to look within yourself and think, what did I do during the day that could have affected me at night and resulted in a bad sleep mm-hmm. performance? So once you do that, then you can think, well, how do I then move on to optimizing my sleep? Things such as minimizing light at night, things such as what time are you going to bed? If you're going to bed at 11 p.m., maybe go to bed at 10 p.m. If you're drinking any form of alcohol is probably the worst thing that you could do for your sleep. It kicks you out of sleep and it sedates you. So these are the things that you can think, okay, all right, Javier, I have had, all right, Louisa, you had a bad night's sleep last night. So tonight we're going to really step it up again. We are going to eliminate caffeine. We're going to eliminate alcohol and we're going to start to settle down our mind and our body at around 9, 9 p.m., 9.30. Mm. You can use me as an example. Don't worry. What are your thoughts on sleep supplements? Well, so supplements play a role depending on who you are. And I actually have a sleep stack, meaning that I have several different supplements that I use at night for different reasons. So one of the supplements that I use is GABA, uh, G-A-B-A. It stands for gamma amino butyric acid. Hmm. That is our chief inhibitory neurotransmitter. So we have these things called neurotransmitters in our brain, and they are just chemical messengers. And then we've got several of them. And what happens is every time our neurons, which are our brain cells, and whenever they communicate with each other, they send sing- signals. Okay. So they synapse and they send a signal and those are neurotransmitters. And when they're going and firing 24 seven, that means we're awake. Our brain is, it's on, it's thinking and you can't settle your mind down. So if you go and supplement with GABA, which is already a naturally occurring neurotransmitter in your brain, it inhibits the synapses from firing. So it stops them, meaning that it calms your mind down at night. 
I supplement sometimes with GABA. I don't, with all of my supplements, I don't go into a, I don't take them for long periods of time, but that's one thing I supplement with. And then another thing is magnesium L3 and 8. So it's a form of magnesium. And uh, most US adults are actually deficient in, in magnesium. So it's a really great uh, supplement to take. But this one specifically is you take it at night because it crosses the blood brain barrier and it calms you down as well. And it just puts me in such a big sleep. It puts me in such a deep sleep. What about melatonin? Yeah. So, about- mel- so melatonin is a, it's the hormone and it's released mm-hmm. from a, an area in your brain called the pineal gland. And so it's naturally occurring, but it's a sleepiness hormone. So it naturally gets released in response to darkness. The reason why this is now over the counter is because we don't have too much darkness anymore. We are up our, the, we've got the television going, we've got the internet going, the, the computer screens. So we don't get a lot of darkness. So we then supplement with an exogenous form of melatonin. I don't take it. I would only take it when I am traveling maybe mm-hmm. LA to New York or you know LA to Australia. And that's just to get me back on the right circadian rhythm. But the reason why I don't take it is for two reasons. One, you really don't want it to be taking a hormone. Mm. A hormone, that's like mm-hmm. testosterone. This is the only over-the-counter hormone that is sold. So you really want to be careful with that. Secondly, the dosages that are said to be on the bottles. So for example, I have a five milligram uh, bottle and a lot of the studies, when they go out and do third-party testing on these supplements, they find that there is a hundred times more melatonin in these pills than what is promised on the label. Really? So you got to be really careful with the uh, with what you. T- wow. Yeah, I've taken them in the past, and they're extremely powerful. It's not like somebody just hit you with a bat. Yeah, absolutely. In the sense of recovery which goes hand in hand with sleep. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So recovery is huge. Okay. There's several different forms of recovery, sleep, evidently rest. And then you've got other things that can accelerate recovery, such as cold thermogenesis or cold baths, like an ice bath. You've also Mm -hmm. got heat exposure, such as sauna therapy. So all of these different uh, modalities play a, a role. However, I always say to start with sleep. There is no point in attacking the going out and buying supplements, going out and getting in a in an ice bath if you're not sleeping. So let's just say somebody is sleeping well. What are some of the other things that they can do to accelerate the recovery? I'm a really big fan of cold exposure. In Australia, I have a, a cold bath an ice bath. I don't have one in New York City. It's just not possible. Cold. It's an amazing method, but it's also, it should be practiced with caution. So some of the effects that you can see from jumping into a cold bath is you can see rapid release of something called norepinephrine, which is a, it's a neurotransmitter, but it's also a hormone. It's also known as noradrenaline. So when we get an an influx in this. So you get into the cold bath and you literally have a rapid release of norepinephrine of 250% more than what you would just walking around. So it's a huge rapid release. And what it does is it helps with vigilance and focus. So you get into the bath and you get this massive release and it helps you become extremely focused and vigilant. So 
that's the first thing that it does. But the second thing that it does is it helps with something called hormesis. And basically it's this physiological phenomenon that is whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So just, you know, how you have to stress your body to get fitter and grow muscles. It's the same with your physiology. So the more that you stress it in terms of good stress, like getting into a cold bath, it helps you overcome many different things. So it helps with your immunity. It helps with, it can even help with weight loss. It can even help with decreasing inflammation and cortisol. So it's a, it's just such a powerful thing that that I love. And then when I say you have to practice it with caution, it's because if you are going to the gym or you're doing training that involves hypertrophy, which is growing bigger muscles, you can block the effects if you get into a cold bath within an hour of that training session. So when I see people putting these ice baths in the gym and getting into the ice bath immediately after a training session, I think, what are you doing? Mm. That's stupid. So if you do see that, which I've seen it in Miami, you, you really need to question the, uh, the people putting you in that ice bath. Wow. Okay. Yes. I've seen stupidity across the board then. Welcome to my life. I see stupidity <laughs> literally from, I don't have uh, the reason why I don't have the, the Instagram app on my phone. Incredible. Does cold showers create the same effect or no? Look, it, it can at the start because you're not used to it. But over time, I don't think it reaches, a, especially in Miami, I don't think it reaches a, a cold enough temperature for you to have those effects. And it's also time dependent. So you could get into a freezing cold bath and stay in there for eight minutes, or you could mm-hmm. get into it maybe a bit warmer, two, two degrees warmer than that bath, but stay in there for 15 minutes. So it's time dependent. That's if you have the tolerance. If you've got the tolerance. I trained a very good friend for the New York City Marathon. He had never done a marathon before. And I introduced him cold plunges. There was a cold plunge over at the standard. And we got... Oh, there's a plunge at the standard? Yes, there is. You should go try oh, it. Okay. It, is amazing. I wonder it is amazing. It is amazing. one here. Yeah, there was, it was pretty cold. I remember that. We got in the habit after a long run, we would go straight to the standard and get ourselves in a cold plunge. And I feel that made a huge difference on his recovery, his mood, his performance on everything. What would be your protocol? Let's say, for instance, if I'm running in Miami, I'm sweaty, I need to get myself into a cold plunge. How much time should we wait before we go into something cold? What would mm-hmm. be the protocol that you would suggest? So you want to be, you want to have it out of a two hour window, so pre or post. So that's the first thing. And the reason being is that when you release all of these hormones and you release these proteins called cold shock proteins, they block the hormetic response. So it's you don't want to block that. Don't get into a cold bath two hours before training and stay clear for it, from it for two hours after training. That's the first thing. But you brought something up, humidity. It's something that's happening is you're sweating a lot and replenishing the things that you lose during sweat such as sodium, potassium, electrolytes is probably mm. going to do better for you than anything else. Oh, wow. So, okay. So you suggest getting some sort of uh, electrolyte drink, then going in a cold plunge. And uh, cold plunges should be done to start your day. And the best thing you day. can do is do it first thing in the morning. Okay. Noted. I'm enlightened so far. Mm. Okay. Last topic I wanted to discuss with you. What's your take on resistance training and how it relates to brain health? Yeah, I have this saying, and that is my hope is that 
people start going to the gym and doing resistance training, not for physique, but for brain health. There's so much to be spoken about uh, as it relates to brain health. We'll cut exercise down into aerobic. That's your that you're mm. cycling, that you're walking, etc. And then you've got the we'll also call it resistance training where you're going and you're doing weights. So there is the difference between the two as it relates to brain health. And if we focus solely on resistance training, what we see is the moment that we start resistance training, we get a rapid release of myokines. And myokines are muscle-based proteins. So we exercise and we get a release of a myokine, which let's just say, let's call IGF-1, insulin mm. growth like factor one. And that has, we don't get this in, in, in the way that we, we don't get this from exercising in the aerobic space as much as what we do in resistance training. So when we get a rapid release of this, it has an effect on our cognitive functions such as attention, memory, decision-making. So that's one thing. We also see a rapid release of irisin. And irisin is a really beautiful molecule that was only founded recently in the last five, 10 years. And it's it's named after a Greek god, Iris. Mm. And you can you don't get this from aerobic exercise. So irisin is very powerful. So it gets released in response to resistance training, and it actually goes up and crosses the blood-brain barrier, and it has an effect on the functioning of our brain. So we have studies now that show we do MRI studies now that show that you can change your brain functionally. That's how it functions. And structurally, you can literally change the structure and grow your brain via resistance training alone. And I think that is spectacular. I'm putting up on my, once we finish from here, I'm putting up a post to say that we lose gray matter of our brain. We've got gray matter and white matter. When we lose gray matter and it becomes thinner when we are really stressed. So you can also grow gray matter when you are resistance training. So I think it's uh, I think that's really great too. It is great for people not to get confused with resistance training and going to Orange Theory, something like that. I consider that more cardio than anything else. So Irison, my new favorite word, is there a protocol? Is there like a certain number we have to hit? Yeah. The, so the, the mm -hmm. yeah. So how does it get released? It gets right. released when you are working at a 70% of your one repetition max. And you've got to be doing this at least three times a week. I cannot thank you enough for taking the time. Seriously, I want to pick your brain more. No, thank you, Javier, for having me. You're doing an amazing job by putting this all out there. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Luisa Nicola. She's amazing. If you want to geek out in more information, check out her podcast, Neuroathletics Podcast. Or go to her Instagram, at Neuroathletics. Hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Train smart. Train smart.